0: Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. This morning, I'd like if we... Could, if you would look in the book of Romans, the book of Romans chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7 again. This, the verses 1 through 7 kind of sit as the introduction to the entire book. Last Sunday, as uh, I did part 1, we talked about the fact that there's two types of people in the world. Those who, when they sit down to read a good book... Uh, they'll read the preface and the introduction and the table of contents and all that. And then there's others who just jump right in like animals who have not been, who have not been educated at all and just start reading chapter one. Um, I was always that animal until I went to college and my professors taught me the value of reading the introduction and the preface. Because a lot of times it's in those introductory writings that you get a tone that is set for what you're getting ready to read that you wouldn't get otherwise. Paul here, probably, he wrote introductions in every one of his writings, but in this one we get kind of an, a, just a, a brief seven-verse summary of where he's going to go for the next 16 chapters. Um, and uh, it, it is, it's very deep, it's very intense as well. So we're going to look at that again this morning. This is the introduction to the book of Romans. He says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, our Lord, who was descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace. And apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. Including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. When you see that word you in verse number 6, you means us. Anyone who has been called by Jesus Christ who is saved. We have been called and we have all of these values and these qualities before us as well. In verse number 7, to all who are in Rome to all who are loved by God, to all who are called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May I say that as well. This should be how we should greet one another as well. Grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to us. Lord, we have spoken to you through worship and declared your goodness and declared the power of your mercy. And Father, now we open our ears and our hearts and our minds to what you have for us today. I pray, Lord, that as your messenger this morning that I would not um, stand in the way, that I would not say anything that is not intended to be said this morning, God. I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your word that we can stand upon. Lord, speak to us now. Do your will. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So what we see here in the book, uh, in, in the verses that we just read, as I said, is the introduction to a long letter that is written to a bunch of house churches in the capital city of the Roman Empire, in the, in the city of Rome. What's interesting about the city of Rome at this point is that it is still a place, even though Rome houses now today and, did, and has for thousands of years, houses Vatican City, which is the seat of Roman Catholicism. Even though Constantine, thousands of years ago, finally made Christianity the legal religion of the Roman Empire. This is all before that. This is after Jesus has ascended to heaven. This is in the first and second generations of Christianity. Christianity is hated by everyone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. Rome hated Christianity because they thought it was a threat to their empire and to their Pax Romana, their idea of what Roman peace should look like. The Jews hated Christianity because it flew in the face of everything that the Pharisees had built for hundreds and thousands of years through their arrogance and through, it it always ends up this way that when we make religion about religion and when we don't make it about God, it always ends up being about us and how good we are, isn't it? And that's what had happened over centuries of of the Jewish faith at that point. They had become very self-righteous. And the Pharisees had begun making all of these extra rules and laws. And we know what happened with Jesus through the Gospels. Uh, Jesus was hated by the Pharisees. He was crucified. And now his followers are hated by the Pharisees as well. Paul is about to be the most hated man in the Roman Empire. He was at one point the most loved man in the Jewish, in Jewish culture and in the Roman Empire. Now he's getting ready to be public enemy number one because he has been radically saved and radically converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ and he is going to basically write his testimony in this letter to the Romans. Interestingly enough about Paul, as much as Paul traveled and as much as Paul did for the gospel of Jesus Christ through his missionary works, he had not yet gone into Rome yet. Think of Rome like New York City. Rome is like the New York City. It's where everybody wants to go. It's where everything is happening. If you could make it, in, you know how they say, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. If you could make it in Rome, you could make it anywhere. Paul, as great as he had been and as had accomplished as he had been in all the things that he had done in his life, he had yet to go to the big city. He constantly wanted to go and he was getting ready to come to Rome. And so he writes this letter in preparation to all of the house churches that are meeting underground in catacombs that you can actually go and see if you go to Rome in, in, today. You can see the catacombs where Christians had to meet underground and in secret for so long. He writes letters and as they're sitting in those catacombs and as he's reading, they're reading this letter, this is what they're getting. The gospel of Jesus Christ is of the utmost importance. It is the essence of who we are, and it defines who we are as followers of Jesus. Nothing else will define us more than the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we live the gospel in every day, in every way, and in what we do. So this morning, we talked about, or last, last Sunday, we talked about the fact that when you read the introduction to a book, just in these seven verses, we kind of get an overview of what the book of Romans is going to be about. And first of all, we said it's always important to read the introduction because you get to know who the writer is. Of course, we know that the author of the book of Romans is God because God is the author of the Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? Right? And it is profitable, it says in first and second Timothy, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished under all good works. It is God that has given us the book of Romans, but it was Paul that the Spirit moved upon to put pen to paper and to write this down. So we get a little bit of his attitude, his personality, his understanding. So we got to know Paul a little bit, Right? Paul was a horrible bounty hunter. He was a terrible person against Christians. He hated, in all of his religious zeal, he hated Christianity until he met Christ. What we have to understand about that is Christ changes everything. The key subject and the the, the superstar of the Bible story, all 66 books put together, the key figure in all of it, even if his name is not mentioned, the key subject is Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus was there. Revelation chapter 22, in the very last verse, Jesus is there. And every verse in between, he's there. And can I say this too, church? Jesus is here as well. Jesus is the subject. Jesus is the key. The introduction helps us to get to know the writer and kind of the experiences that have brought him to say what he says and how how he explains things as well. But then we also have to understand that as we come to understand the writer, the introduction will also, number two, we're kind of just going to go ahead and pick up and, and go on from here. The introduction helps us to identify the theme of the book or the theme of the letter. Every great book you've ever read has a theme to it, right? How many of you like to read, uh, like to read fiction? If if you're going to pick up a book and read, you would rather read fiction. You like fiction, okay? How do you like to read the classics? Whether it's fiction or whether, you know, like like Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, or Shakespeare and all that stuff. A couple of you, I I like to read the classics. My daughter right now is having to read a lot of classics because she's in uh, English literature right now as a junior. How many of you like to read biographies, like to learn about great people in the past? Okay, what I'm getting is not many of you like to read at all is what I'm getting, right? I like to read biographies or you like to read books of history. How many of you like to read how-to books or academic books and stuff like that? Okay, all right, never mind. I'm just going to quit. How many of you like to read comic books? All right, uh, Hallmark cards. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, so, um, whew, tough crowd this morning. So, if you do, perhaps, perchance, ever uh, set out to read a book, you will identify a theme in a book. I've heard. I've heard tales of that. Anyway, the overall theme of the Book of Romans is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that the word gospel means the good news of Jesus Christ. So this book is a book of good news. Will there be correction in it? Will there be teaching in it? Yes, but it is a book of good news because it declares that Jesus Christ is the king today, yesterday, and forever. That he died upon a cross to forgive us of our sins. And without him, we would have nothing. But because of him, we can have everything. The book of Romans is a book of good news because the theme is the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if you break it down, just kind of let you know kind of where we're going in this entire study. Chapters one through four, the first four chapters, the gospel will reveal how righteous God is, that He is without sin, that He is holy, that He is upright, that He is perfectly just, and it sets a stage for our unholiness. Okay, and so then in chapters 5 through 8, after we see how holy God is, what we're going to see is how unholy we are, but how the gospel will make an unholy humanity new. So in chapters 5 through 8, we're going to begin to see, that's where we begin to see that Roman road of salvation come to, come to fruition, that God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in chapters 9 through 11, we see that the gospel will fulfill God's promises to Israel. That the gospel will fulfill all of God's promises, not only to Israel, but to us as well. And then in chapters 12 through 16, something that is very timely that I believe the church needs today in this hour that we're in, in in, in American history, just specific to us, the book of Romans speaks in verses, in chapters 12 through 16, how it can unify the church. That the gospel is to be our unifying common ground. Throughout history and throughout the centuries, there have been things that Christians and churches have disagreed over, but one thing we must come to understand is the gospel of Jesus Christ must be foundational, and if we can find agreement in that, then when we get to heaven, that's what we're going to find what we agree on when we get there, too. And so that's kind of where we're headed in the book of Romans, but what we have to understand is the gospel is God's great scheme, and it's the Bible's great theme of all history, not only the book of Romans, but the entire Bible and also the history of humanity, the gospel is the theme. If you look at it from the perspective of God's throne and what God is doing here in us and through us and through, and through mankind, the gospel is the main theme and it's God's main scheme for us. Look at verses 1 through 2 again. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. That passage right there. It is the gospel of God. First of all, it's the scheme of God, Right? Because the gospel is God's good news. God is the one who co-signed on it with Jesus Christ. He's the one who devised the plan. He's the one who sent his only begotten son to the cross. So it's God's divine scheme. But secondly, it's something that he had made the theme of all of history. He promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. All the way back when Adam and Eve sinned, the gospel became known. The very minute that Adam and Eve sinned and when God began to deal with that, yes, a curse fell upon man. And because of Adam, all, all, man, all mankind dies and inherits that sin nature. But the moment that that curse fell because of man's actions, the mercy and the grace of God came to fruition because of God's love for us. Catch that and don't miss that. Because of our sin, we deserve for God to turn his back. But he didn't turn his back. Matter of fact, he didn't turn his back on us. He turned his back on his son because of how sin had ravaged his son on the cross. He turned his back on his son so he could fully embrace us as we did not deserve it. That's grace and that's mercy and that's the gospel of God. The gospel is God's great scheme and it is great theme as well. God was ready to go the moment sin entered into the world with redemption's plan. It shows us God's great mercy, his grace, grace, and his love. It shows us his desire to redeem us, and it shows us the importance of the gospel for all of time. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says this, The Lord will not delay his promise as some may understand delay, but he is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to Repentance. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has not said, hey, I like you, I don't like you. I want you, I don't want you. He's not like a captain on a a pickup basketball game saying, I like how tall you are. You're good on my team. And you look over there and you say, I hope they pick them because I don't want them. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why? Because the gospel has been and always will be God's great scheme for mankind. It's a scheme of love and it's a scheme of mercy and grace. The gospel is something that was proclaimed by the prophets. He says it was proclaimed by the prophets, meaning that even before Jesus came to the cross, he sent prophets to kind of be a precursor of grace to say, here is what God wants and here is where God is working and here is God how, how God is leading. We have messianic psalms, we have messianic prophecies in the books of Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah and all of these places. Pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. Even before Jesus came, people were saved by believing that the Messiah would come. Now that Jesus has come, we are saved by knowing and believing that the Messiah has come. And that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. It all centers around the cross. So the gospel is sacred and central to God's desire and design in us. All the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of Genesis, we see the seeds of the gospel beginning to be planted and those seeds begin to take root in every book and in every chapter and in every verse of the Old Testament. God continually shows us that he is holy, that he is unsearchable by human effort and unreachable by human effort and goodness, but that he comes to us God has continually been coming to us. He's not just been sitting on his throne, doling out punishment like a vindictive God. He is a holy, righteous, and loving God who even before Jesus sent prophets to course correct his people. Now that he has sent Jesus and he's given us his word to keep us close to him and in his will, it's not because he is some vindictive person who just wants to hold us down and imprison us. It's because he cares about us and he knows what's best for us because we are his creation. And that's why the gospel is the great theme that when we step away from God, God is merciful to forgive and he's so merciful that he was willing to give his son so that we could be forgiven. And the gospel is personified in Jesus Christ. Look again at verse number three. He says, the prophets told in the holy scriptures in verse number two about this gospel. And the gospel is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who was descendant of David according to the flesh. The gospel is what saves us because the gospel is all about Jesus. And Jesus is the one who saves. When the holy prophets came and they... Maybe never even mentioned the name of Jesus. Isaiah said, you'll call his name Emmanuel. And there are many names for Jesus given. Wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace, the everlasting father. If you go all the way back in Isaiah chapter 9. There is no other name under heaven given by men whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says very quickly. I mean, the fifth word into the book and the introduction is Jesus Christ. And then we see in verse number three, he wants to make sure that the gospel, of, the, the gospel is Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the gospel. If you're trusting in anything but Jesus, you've not been saved. If you're trusting in something plus Jesus, you're not trusting in Jesus for your salvation. It's Jesus and in Jesus alone. He is the personification of the gospel. It was his death, his burial, his resurrection that makes the gospel the good news that it is. No Jesus equals no gospel. The question this morning we all have to wrestle with at some point in our lives, have you received Jesus as your Savior? Or have you just received the tradition of your grandparents or of your parents? Or said, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I know about Christianity, so therefore I must be a Christian. I'm a Christian by default, you know, I'm, I'm not this or I'm not that, I'm not this or that, so I must just be Christian, I guess, because that's the mainstream thing. Listen, the less and less mainstream Christianity becomes, and we're seeing that happen today in our culture and in our time, and church, I want to urge you with something, don't be afraid of that. Because this is the time when the light begins to shine the brightest, the light shines the brightest when it's darkest all around. True faith is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Not a way, not a cultural application, but in Jesus and Jesus alone. Have you trusted in Jesus? Are you trying to minimize Jesus in your life? See, the thing about following Jesus is he calls you to walk away that people aren't going to understand. And they may even hate. Jesus said, if you follow me, people will revile you. They will hate you. And the temptation is always going to be, well, what if I can make Jesus more palatable? Or what if I can look back on some of these things and say, you know what? I don't think Jesus really said that. Get in the word, find out what Jesus said, and live by what Jesus said. It's simple, but it's not easy to do. So reading the introduction helps us to understand not only the writer, but also the theme. And the theme is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reading the introduction, moving right along. And number three is it helps us to identify the hero of the story and I think I've already kind of given you, the, given you a little bit of an understanding of who the hero is going to be. Church, go ahead and give me the fill in. The hero of the story is Jesus. The theme of the story is the gospel. The hero of the story is going to be Jesus. Every great story has a hero, all right? Unless you're one of those weird people who like the villains. Anybody like the villains? Hmm? You, you, you're starting to get that a little bit more now. Like, for some reason, Disney is starting to tell the stories again, but from the villain standpoint. Used to be that, you know, everybody wanted to dress up like the, like the heroes uh, from, from, the, from the stories, but now they've got like Maleficent and they've got all these other ones that are kind of the bad guys, but let's just, they're misunderstood. That's why they're bad or something like that. The hero of the story is what makes the story amazing, right? Every good hero has had a horrible villain to fight. And not only did our hero fight a villain that was the worst villain of all, he defeated the villain. And the thing about it is, is the villain knows that the biggest defeat is still yet to come. It's still yet to come. Reading the introduction helps us to identify the hero. Why is Jesus so heroic? That's the question we have to ask. Why is Jesus such a big deal? i thought about this before just because I'm a, Just because I'm a a pastor doesn't mean I don't have doubts and I don't struggle sometimes with my faith. And so I've, I've asked this question before. Why is Jesus such a big deal? Why is he such a hero? What is it that makes him have this staying power through thousands of years? First of all, the Bible tells us that Jesus is heroic because he's the son of God. He's heroic because of his bloodline. Every good hero always has like this special bloodline about them. They got something within them that just makes them special. Jesus is the hero. Every good hero has a great backstory. And being the son of God makes you, makes you have a pretty good backstory, right? It gives you an eternal backstory. Like I said, back in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was God, Right? Well, God is the Trinity. Jesus Christ is there at the beginning. He was there before the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's everything in between and he's everything before and after. Jesus has a great backstory, but he has an even better front future story as well. And we're part of that story because of the gospel. You get it? We're part of that story because of the gospel. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 1 verse 3 again. he says, The gospel concerns his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. As the son of God, Jesus is the prince of peace. He's the light of heaven and the only son of God. Colossians says that it pleased the father that all the fullness of God should dwell in Jesus Christ. Even the fullness of his wrath against sin which Je- when Jesus was on the cross. See, Jesus is the son of God. That's a great backstory. He's got the pedigree to be the hero. The second thing is Jesus is our Lord who we serve. He's our Lord who we serve. And he's not a cruel master. He is a benevolent master. He's a benevolent Lord. A lot of heroes through through literature in the past has been someone who frees the captive or who sets the slave free. Jesus sets us free through his blood and through his redemption. You see, but when he sets us free, he sets us up with a new purpose to serve him and we are bought with a price to serve him in freedom and in liberty and by loving one another and by loving the world around us. See, every servant has a master. Paul declared that Jesus was to be his Lord. Slaves were bought and sold by their masters. Jesus is the master who purchases us for the the purpose of setting us free. He purchased us not because... He has a whole lot of money and discretionary income to do something with. He paid for us with his blood. He paid for us with his life. He is a master who gave everything. So we who deserve nothing could have him. He's the Lord who we serve. He's also, the Bible says he's David's descendant, which means he's the fulfillment of prophecy. Why would he put in here that he is the descendant of David according to the flesh? Because Paul is not just writing to the Gentiles in Rome, but also to the Jews who were living in Rome as well. At this point in history, the Jews, all of them had been expelled by a previous emperor for years. Now they were allowed to come back under a new emperor. And so the church, and we'll see this later on in the book of Romans, the church is beginning to unite again culturally from Jewish people and Gentile people. And so he puts in here, he's a descendant of the David because it triggers in that Jewish believer, he's the one the prophets foretold. What we have to understand is this, Jesus is God's son. He is everything. He is foundational to everything. People sometimes look at Christians and say, man, you try to insert scripture and you try to insert the gospel into everything. Yeah, because we're dumb enough, and I say dumb with air quotes, we're dumb enough to believe that if Jesus is everything for my eternity, he's also everything for my present. That also lays on us a very important Responsibility that we don't inject Jesus in a way he doesn't need to be injected. He's David's descendant. David, and, and this is beautiful. Why did he note that Jesus was a descendant of David? Because the Jewish people loved them some David, man. They loved them some King David. They loved the Psalms. They loved uh, all these stories that they had, but also because it was the fulfillment of the prophecy that the Messiah would come through the line of David. See, David was the replacement that God gave Israel for their mistake in choosing Saul to be their king first, who didn't follow God. David was God's redeeming of a nation who had not sought him out when they chose a king. Jesus is God's redemption for us when we turned our back on God. You see how that works? David, or Jesus as a descendant of David, David and, and the whole fact of how he became a king is very, it, it, it kind of it mimics the way God gives us Jesus. Jesus is also powerful to defeat sin and bring death. Here's what makes Jesus heroic. No hero becomes a hero without a great battle, right? You don't become a hero without a great confrontation. Jesus is powerful to defeat sin and, And bring death to death. Look what it says in verse number four. It was appointed unto Jesus to be the powerful son of God. According to the spirit of holiness. And by the resurrection of the dead. That spirit of holiness was he. The fact that he withstood every temptation just like we had. Yet he did it without sin the Bible says. And the fact that he raised from the dead. He paid the penalty of death for us and he rose from the dead. How much more heroic can you get than to die and then come back to life and defeat death? And not only defeat death, but give everlasting life to anyone who would follow him? He holds the keys to eternal life. That's our hero. That's the hero that we look at, the theme being the gospel, the hero being Jesus Christ. Every hero is strong, and sometimes it manifests itself by physical strength, by mental strength, or by strength of character, and here Jesus manifests it in every way. Physically or mentally, he was able to endure the temptation of Satan after 40 days of no food on the mountain. He was able to go toe-to-toe and spar with the most learned Pharisees and scholars and leave them scratching their heads with how much he knew. What else do you expect from someone who's omniscient, though? Right? He went toe to toe with Satan and his temptations and defeated him. He went toe to toe with the temptations and with the the embattlements from the Pharisees who continually tried to trip him up and catch him. And they never could because he's omniscient. Physically, he was a hero. He was a carpenter before the days of Kubota and Milwaukee chainsaws, man. He was out there felling trees with an axe that he probably grinded down himself and he was stripping bark off. Jesus wasn't some namby-pamby little, like, you know, demasculated person. The dude was ripped because he was ripping wood all the time. Physically he was strong. After withstanding 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails, he then still had the physical strength to carry a wooden cross almost entirely up the hill of Calvary. And then he withstood after that, he withstood the pain of nails being driven through his hands and his feet and he hung on a cross for hours clinging to life and breath before finally succumbing to the forces of being a man. Jesus was physically our hero as well. But what do you expect of someone who's omnipotent? Jesus had heroic character. No one was stronger. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin, the book of Hebrews tells us. Never a moment of misplaced anger. Never one vile or sinful thought, even in his mind. Not one harmful or hurtful word was ever spoken that was not constructive to the glory of God. Never uttered a lie, not even a white lie, not once. He had character and integrity that was unmatched. But his greatest demonstration of power was when he conquered death in the grave. This is our hero. This is Jesus. This is the one that we sometimes take his name in vain or sometimes make him our little mascot or we sometimes joke about him or try to make him punchlines. Jesus is not a punchline. He's not a mascot. He's the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He's our hero. It sounds odd to say Jesus is my hero. It may seem old school. It may seem zealous. It may not seem enlightened enough. But let me ask you this. If Jesus isn't going to be your hero, who else qualifies? Who else qualifies to be our hero? Who qualifies to be the hero of the church? Right? There's a lot of fake heroes out there. And... And I'll be honest, when we go through seasons and we go through things and we begin to look at other things and other people like they're our heroes preachers, politicians, political parties, movements, lobbyist groups, authors Jesus is the hero of the church. He's not taking applications for any other, He's our hero. And then fourth this morning, and and finally, reading the introduction identifies the writer, it identifies the theme, it identifies the hero, but it also helps us to identify the message and the mission. In the introduction to this book, in the first seven verses, Paul gives us the message of the book, and he also gives us the mission. See, the greatest works of literature carry with it a message that seems to be trans transcendent above their generations. This is why we still read Shakespeare today. This is why we still read the works of Charles Dickens or somebody else that we, this is how works become classics because they carry with them messages that just don't seem to sit for the day but they are applied to generations beyond and they become beloved and they teach lessons that we all need to have. The greatest works of literature also have the ability to also ignite causes or movements which endure for generations. And not always in a good way. There are works of, of, uh, of literature that don't always ignite the proper causes. Not holy causes either. The book of Romans both has a message and a mission, a mission that endures for eternity. The book of Romans and the word of God carries with it the message of the gospel and the mission of seeing the world saved by the gospel. Here's the message that Jesus gives life through resurrection and through grace. The message of the book of Romans is that we are dead, Jesus gives us life through resurrection and grace. Here's what it says in verse number five as we look back in our text again. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. Here's the gospel plain and simple for us. You and I are not enough. You and I are not enough. If we took all of the financial assets in our church and in every home budget in our church, Of members of our church, if we took all of the collective education, if we took all of the collective experience, if we took all of the collective heritage from each family that we've come from and the history that our families have lived, if we took all of that and stacked it together into one superhuman person, it still would fall short of what we need to stand before God. If we were to go beyond our church and to take every Christian around the world and put us all together, all of our education, all of our assets, all of our power, all of everything, it still falls short. We're not enough. We're not enough. King Saul, he was the greatest in all Israel, head and shoulders above everyone else. He wasn't enough If Saul wasn't enough, you and I aren't enough. Saul of Tarsus, wealthy, highly educated, equally Jewish, equally Roman, Pharisee among the Pharisees. He wasn't enough. If he wasn't enough, you and I aren't enough. David, the man after God's own heart, chosen by God to be king. If he wasn't enough, you and I aren't enough. We're not enough. We are still dead in our trespasses and sins, but Jesus is more than enough. And because of his grace and his mercy and what he did upon the cross and because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he will make us enough. He gives us his righteousness and he helps us to stand before God as his child. He gives life to the dead through resurrection. He says, through him, through Jesus Christ, it says in verse number five, we have received grace. Look again at verses 5 through 6, because God gives us not just grace, but he gives us purpose through this thing that Paul calls apostleship. We don't use that word a whole lot in our Baptist tradition, but what it basically means is, I've been called something for a purpose. He gives us a purpose through apostleship, called and sent out to bear testimony, Through the power of the gospel, Jesus calls out to us just like he did to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And he says, and here's what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us we're not enough, but Jesus will make us enough. Now, what are you going to do with your life once he makes you enough? You can't go on just living your life for nothing after you've been given everything. You just can't do that. This is why we look sometimes at celebrities or or people who are rich and say they're so entitled because all they do is they use their wealth just for themselves, and not everyone does. But with great giftedness comes great responsibility in church. If we know Jesus Christ, if he is the hero, if the gospel is the theme, we owe the gospel of the hero to a world who doesn't know him. That's our purpose. Jesus gives us purpose. purpose, And the question is, are we living that purpose? We're called out as apostles. We're called out to evangelize the lost. And then look at what it says in verses number six and seven. Including you, who are also called by Jesus Christ. Paul says, I was called by Jesus on the road to Damascus. If you are a child of God, if you are a member of his church, you are called as well. And I ask you this, when were you called? Where were you called? Do you remember? Because here's what he does. The church is loved by God. We are loved by God, church. There may come a day when it doesn't seem like the church is loved by anyone. But remember this. You may be hated by everyone, but you will always be loved by God. Always. The church is loved by God and called as saints. That word saints comes from the Greek hagaios. Means to be holy, to be set apart, and to be chosen. As the church, we have to understand where we do stand. We stand called by Jesus to salvation and discipleship. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and are burdened, and I'll give you rest. We stand called by Jesus. We stand loved by God so much that he would give his only son so we could have eternal life. But God commended or demonstrated or gave his love to us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, Romans chapter 5 says. We stand called as saints, holy and chosen by God for a holy purpose. All of this is possible, not because of us, not because of me, not because of you, but because God has chosen to allow it to be so. We don't deserve it. None of us are enough. But God says, my son, saving you will be enough. All of this is possible because of the gospel. We're seven verses into this book. Seven verses in. I'm telling you it's going to be changing. It's going to be radical. And I mean by that it's going to turn us on our heads sometimes. Because the gospel is everything. The theme, our theme, our theme should be the gospel. Our hero should be Jesus. And our purpose should be seeing other people come to know Jesus. The overall, the overall message of this book is pretty much the overall message statement of the church. It's just, it's just the mission statement of the church. The theme should be the gospel. The hero should be Jesus. And what we should be about is seeing people come to him. As we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning, my question is this morning, what is your response to this great gospel? Will we respond like so many who mark the landscape of Christian history like last week when I mentioned Martin Luther and St. Augustine and all these people through history who have looked in this book alone, the book of Romans, and found Jesus Christ to be their Savior? What's your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will you come to him or will you reject him? You say, I've been saved. That's great. What's your daily response to the gospel? How are you living in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? As you read this story, you find out that there's a great message, man. It's written by somebody who has experience in the power of the gospel because it completely changed Paul's life. Completely changed him from being Saul of Tarsus to being Paul the missionary. Written by someone who knows what he's talking about, right? Who knows the theme of everything is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if you live this life and you get everything this world has to offer, but you miss the gospel you have a horrible eternity in front of you. Who finds a hero named Jesus Christ who doesn't seem like a hero that everybody else would look like. Who said, turn the other cheek. Who said, to love, even though he had all power, he still loved and he submitted to things so that he could bring us grace and mercy. How are we living our daily life? How do we respond to that? And here's the biggest question. Have you read yourself into the story? You know how when you read a great book, you just get lost in it? I've done this before. If I've read a great book, and if I've read it right before bed, and I start to go to sleep, and I'll dream that I'm in the story. When was the last time that you've read yourself into the story of Scripture? That you read this book and realize that it's not just a tale of a bunch of people that lived a long time ago, but it is a tale of you and me today too. Have you read yourself into the story yet? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? This is how you read yourself into the story. You trust Jesus. So have you trusted Christ? If you're worshiping virtually with us this morning, if you have not trusted Christ today, he wants you to be in the story. If you don't know him, come to him today. If you're in here this morning today, come talk to me. Come talk to Brother Jason at the back. Talk to somebody today. If you're struggling with faith, if you have questions, whatever it may be. I'm not saying it's easy. But man, we have a great story to tell. We have a great hero to champion. And we have a great purpose to live. Heavenly Father, do your will in this invitation, please. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand today, if you need to come today. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.